Oh, good morning, everybody. I, I got given a, a job. We uh, were at an elders' meeting, and Bob mentioned to us that uh, he'd like us, he'd like to have some time with the heroes of faith. And uh, he said, "Can you choose a few?" So we went round, and each one of us chose somebody. And he says, "Right, would you like to speak on that?" And uh, called us out, <laughs> and. Uh, I went straight to this man, Elijah. I, why did I choose him as my hero of faith? It's because his life reminds me so much of the way things have played out in my own life. And he's so much like us. And he appears out of the blue from a place few people have heard about. And he's sent by God to do things for which he feels quite inadequate. I know that feeling. <laughs> I've had that. I even feel that today, to be honest. And uh, the knees are weak, but let's hope the voice doesn't get too weak too. So, but I've got this microphone going anyway. And the first thing we hear of him is in Elijah, is in one Kings chapter seventeen, and all we're speaking about comes after that. So, if you want to turn over to that. But the first thing we hear is now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And uh, that's the first we hear of this man called Elijah. We love singing about him, and, uh, but he right, really appears out of the blue in this way. And while he supervises a huge miracle at Mount Carmel, which was the beginning of the end for the Baal worship, and I'm sure you all know the story of how he uh, taunts the Baal worshippers, he also epitomizes the weakness and the limitations of man. He knew all about deep depression. Some of you know about that? Well, he knew it too. But he also knew this mountaintop experience of elation. And that's so much like us, isn't it? That's, that's human life. Elijah had great faith in God, in his God, and prayer was important to him. He was obedient to God's instruction and always teachable. And probably his greatest experience was not at Carmel, though you'd think that would be, but in the cave of Mount Horeb where God reveals himself to Elijah. And we're going to look at more, that more closely later. He's one of only three people mentioned in the Bible who didn't die. And uh, though he did at his lowest point beg to die, but who were these people? Come on, who were they? Who? Enoch, yeah. And Elijah, of course. Who was the third one? Ah, that's a catch one, isn't it? You'll never guess it. Melchizedek. That's right, isn't it? He didn't die. <laughs> he didn't have, we don't know when he was born either, but uh, we know he didn't die. That's one we always forget about. But uh, yeah, there were three, and he's only one of them. Elijah was translated into heaven, but according to Malachi, he's going to return just before the second coming of the Lord Jesus to judge the world. Today... Let's see if we can learn from the life of Elijah and how we can apply these principles to our own lives. I can't promise you a ride in a chariot of fire, 
sorry. <laughs> I'm sure you'd love the thrill of that. But we have promised that absent from the body is present with the Lord and that on the day before, on the day that Jesus Christ returns, we will meet him in the air. And I don't know how we're going to get there. Maybe it will be in a chariot of fire, but you'll need an awful lot of chariots because there'll be a lot of people going up. And we're going to be with him forever. If God was so gracious to Elijah, how much more to us? Because we've got the Lord Jesus. So let's start by looking at John the Baptist. Now, that's a funny one to jump to, isn't it? But he's a man who's said to have the spirit and power of Elijah. And that brings us to the question, was John the Baptist a reincarnation of Elijah? And Luke 1, 11 to 17, if you'd like to turn to that, we're told how it was that uh, it was Zechariah the priest's turn to burn incense at the altar. Suddenly, the angel Gabriel appeared to tell him that his prayer for a son had been heard. And we'll read from there. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. You realize he was actually born, born again. The only man that we know of who ever was. And he will, go, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So who was this John the Baptist? Was he a reincarnation of John the Baptist? And Malachi uh, 4, 5 to 6, says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Does that sound familiar? And the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, the prophecy of Malachi has been misinterpreted by the Jews to this day. Even many of them, uh, when they keep a spare seat at the uh, table, um, Passover, they keep that spare seat. That seat, in their eyes, is for Elijah to return. And that's how they, many of them still think. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. So it's not surprising that John the Baptist caused some confusion here. Because the only people who teach this reincarnation are the Hin um, Hindus and um, uh, like religions. Well, they, um, I think the Buddhists teach that as well, that you can come back as something else. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation because we've got a soul. That's why. If, you had, if you've got a soul, why would, he why would the Bible teach reincarnation? How many of them would there be? It doesn't make sense at all from the Bible's point of view. I did a bit of looking around on this because I asked this question, well, then who is this John the Baptist? What is this about? And there's one commentator called Eugene Merrill 
who pointed out that when the Jewish masses learned of the ministry of John the Baptist in the wilderness, they went out to him and inquired as to his identity. Was he the Messiah, they wondered, or Elijah, or the prophet, the prophet, that is, the, the prophet of Deuteronomy 18? And to each of, these, each of these questions, his answer was what? No. No, I'm not John the Baptist. He actually said that himself. I mean, I'm not, he was John the Baptist. He was not Elijah. And that's very, question, very difficult. But the very question reflects anticipation of a coming Elijah. Because the Jews were expecting Elijah. They did believe in that Malachi um, prophecy. So where do we go from here? Another commentator, a man by the name of MacArthur, who's got a study Bible, uh, he wrote, the prediction that the actual Old Testament person of Elijah would be the forerunner of the Messiah and his judgment was well known to the Jews of Jesus' day. Therefore, as Peter, James and John came down the mountainside with the Lord, that's from the Mount of Transfiguration, you'll remember that, <clears throat> they couldn't have helped wondering how the appearance of Elijah they had just witnessed fit in with Malachi's prophecy. If you are the Messiah, we, <clears throat> as you have declared, and we have believed, they asked in effect, why did Elijah not appear before you began your ministry? It was doubtlessly that same concern that many of the Jewish leaders used to justify rejecting Jesus' messiahship. And it was probably Malachi's prophecy that caused some people to think that Jesus was Elijah rather than the Messiah. Makes sense, doesn't it? <clears throat> Despite his great miracles, they may have reasoned, Jesus cannot be the Messiah because Elijah has not yet come. See how they're thinking and how easy it is to misinterpret the scriptures. So he must be Elijah, they said. Well, happily for us, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew eleven thirteen and 14, for all the prophets and the law, and the law prof prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. That is, he was not a reincarnation of Elijah. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's a very different kettle of fish, isn't it? To bring Israel to repentance. And that was his job to prepare the way of the Lord. It's possible that Elijah will come back as, uh, in person as one of the two witnesses of Revelation 11, 1 to 13, but we won't go into that today. That gets even more complicated, believe me. We'll leave that one to Bob. <laughs> he can sort that one out. <laughs> I'm certainly not going to try. We have a better message than John. The kingdom of heaven has come we can tell of Christ's repayment for sin on the cross and his victory in the resurrection. But without repentance, this is the important thing, without repentance there can be no acceptance of Christ for we have to understand that we need forgiveness for sin or Jesus died in vain for our sin. So that is one of the important things that we must take from this today. And it doesn't matter who John was, but the message he gave was repentance. And that's one 
that we need to preach in this world today. Don't you reckon? If ever there was a time that we need repentance, it's now. And I see the terrible things that people are doing across this world. The second thing I want to talk about this morning is how great is your God? And this I want to spend a little more time on. You know, Elijah is so real. He's just had an enormous victory over Baal worship and at God's instruction prayed for rain to break the drought. And um, a bit like Ken Franz, you know, he was praying for rain not so long ago and trying to stir us to do it, weren't you, Ken? But he didn't afterwards run the four-minute mile that Elijah did. And I can't promise you that you'll be able to either. But uh, he ran ahead to get ahead of Elijah. But let's look at James 5, verses 17 and 18, where James sums up really the key part of us. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now that should have been an enormous encouragement, knowing that God was using using him and listening to him. And then we get this tremendous thing that happens. Jezebel threatens him and says, by this time tomorrow, if you're not dead, I'm going to be really rather annoyed, (laughs) to put it mildly. And we're told that he's afraid and flees to neighbouring Judah. So let's have a look at 1 Kings chapter 19. We've got some selected verses so that we don't have to read it all. I take it that most of you are familiar with the story of Elijah. And so uh, you'll be able to catch up. But let's read 1 Kings 19, 3 to 4, first of all. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then again in 1 Kings 19, 8 to 15. It goes on. So he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. 
When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Why was Elijah afraid of a death threat? Yet asked God straight after it, It's enough, Lord, now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Doesn't make sense, does it? Why was he afraid of Jezebel? And I just cannot see that it was fear of Jezebel's threat that brought him to this position. And it seems more likely that he saw himself being inadequate for the task of bringing Israel to repentance. It's a hard one to explain to people, but I can understand his depression and hopelessness because that happened to me when I was serving as a missionary in Ethiopia. Sim remembers it well. Despite success with people accepting the Lord, I went to a service in, in Walata, what they call Walata now, it was Walamo then, and I preached my heart out and about 20 people stood up and gave their hearts to the Lord. I was being used. So what was wrong? What was depressing me? What was wrong there? I had this awful feeling that I was not up to the task. I needed something more. It was as if God was saying to me, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Just like he said it to Elijah. God made Elijah travel all the way to Horeb. And he revealed himself to Elijah, much as he did to Moses. Do you remember how he took Moses to a cave and showed himself to him? But this time it was from a different aspect. First of all, there was the big impressive stuff. A great and strong wind broke up rocks and stuff. We've just had an experience of that. We went all the way to America just to feel what a hurricane feels like. (laughs) And Florence came through, and man, that was a wind, believe me. We were fortunately out of the main part, but they're still picking up the pieces in Wilmington where it hit on the coast. We were two hours from the coast and it still did a lot of damage and flooding and stuff where we'd been. And after that, James tells us, our son James, um, when we were speaking to him, he said, Michael came through, that was the one that hit Florida, and it was still strong enough to kill four people in uh, North Carolina, which is way up. And he said this time, it wasn't quite the same as the last one. He said the last one just hung around for a couple of days and the wind blew. This time he said it didn't last long, but man, it was strong. (laughs) So uh, that's what a strong wind is. And we saw, you've seen some of the pictures of houses at Wilmington where all that's left is the foundations of the house, nothing else. That's what a strong wind is like. That's the big stuff. And then there was an earthquake, and God wasn't in that either. And then there was a fire. You think, you know. This is how we think of God. You know, he's, he's in the big stuff only. But then we're told God was not in these. And then there's a still, small voice. A still, small voice. And that's the voice that we hear today when the Holy Spirit speaks to us. That same, still, small voice. And that's God. That is God speaking. Elijah had to learn that while God is in control of the big and showy events, he's also in control of all events. 
What are you doing here, Elijah? Is God asking you that question today? What are you doing here? Are you feeling down a bit? In response to that question, in my time, I heard that voice, what are you doing here? And in response, I took action. I surrendered. I said, I'm giving up. Lord, I can't go on like this. I know you've been using me. I know that, but there's something wrong. And I think it's I don't have enough of you in me. And from that moment, I changed. I'm sure you've heard me talk about this before. If you've read my book, it's in there. But I keep coming back to it because I have to remind myself that on that day, I came to God and I said, look, I'm giving up, Lord. I can't go on like this. And I gave myself to God piece by piece. I got on my knees and I said, Lord, take my hands. Use them if you want. Take my feet. Use them if you want. Take my body. You can kill me if you like. Take my mind. I'm giving up. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm going to let you take over. I cannot go on the way I was. I've been trying to be in charge. I want you to be the one who takes it. And something wonderful happened. I said, if you want me to die, I'm willing to die. But if you want to use me and you want me to live, I'm willing to live. And you know, it was such a relief not having to try anymore. That was the tremendous relief to me. It was as though God said, about time. The way I described it afterwards was to say, it's like being born again, again. And I've heard people say that. And I know some amazing people in this world who have been leaders in Christianity. And um, there's a book called by um, a man called Edmonds who lists all the people, and it's called They Found the Secret. And that really opens up to us how numerous people have given up their lives again and again and said, this is enough. I want you to take over. And this is what God wants us to do. He doesn't just want a mind sitting there. You can't sit still when he's taken over. And he says, now I can use you. He showed me that anything I could do that was effective was from his power, not mine. It wasn't me. You know, there's a a danger of becoming proud when you think it's you who's doing it. But I'm only his instrument. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. And that's a lesson we have to learn. It's so important to us. It's a, you know, I, I went from that situation. I went home and I saw God use me in some amazing ways. I couldn't believe it. Even a demon coming out of a, a man, a, a chuka, at, at the convention there. And somebody on a plane coming to Christ. And all sorts of other things happening. Because God was in charge. Okay, I must be perfect by now. No, I'm not. Look at me. You all know me. My wife knows me better than anyone. She can tell you I'm not perfect. And she will. (laughs) But, uh, But, you know, this is the big thing, that we can trust Christ to take us over if it's his strength. So his answer to Elijah's complaint that he was the only one left was to tell him that God knew and reserved for himself 7,000 faithful believers. Here he was. Lord, it's only me left. I'm the only person whining away like crazy. And God says, hey, no. 
you got the wrong end of the stick. There are 7,000 people that I know of that have never done what you think they have. They are faithful believers. We just need to be faithful and have faith in God. You see, Carmel, that Mount Carmel effort was God's victory. Raising the child of the woman of Zarephath when the kid died, you know, he'd been looking after, she'd been looking after him and her son died. And you remember how he laid himself on her and all that stuff. And then he called on God and God raised that kid from the dead. That was an amazing thing. But who did it? Was it Elijah? No, it wasn't. That was God again. That's God's doing. And bringing Israel to repentance would be God's work, even though he uses human beings such as we are, as as, uh, James calls it. It's not Billy Graham or Hudson Taylor or any of us who bring people to Christ. We might think he does, but it's not him. It's not us. It's totally the work of God. And all he asks of us is to listen to and obey the voice of the Holy Spirit, that little small voice that speaks within us, who lives within us. I'm no longer depressed because I know that he's in charge. And when I forget that, I have to remind myself over and over, not me, Lord, even standing here this morning. You don't know the effort it takes to stand up and speak. I know a few others in this church know what it feels like. Their knees knock and they're strong. But it's the strength of the Holy Spirit. We listen and we're not, we know that he is in charge. Nothing I say is going to lead one of you to Christ. But like Paul, I can say, and I think that's wonderful. He says, I'm determined to preach only Christ and him crucified. No fancy sermons. You realize Paul did not use fancy sermons. He says so. He said, I'm just going to preach Christ and him crucified. Because salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not the work of a man. I can't lead you to Christ. Unless you listen to that small, still small voice that's saying, I want you to believe, and you give way to that, and you obey, then you can't be saved. As Paul told the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said that in Philippians 4. Just, this is such a relief to so many of us. And finally... I just want to mention the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, it's interesting that Elijah asked his new assistant, that was Elisha, in 2 Kings 2, 9 and 10. He says, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am taken from you, It shall be so for you, but if you don't see me, it shall not be so. Now, get this right. Elisha wasn't asking for twice the power. That's something that uh, we tend to think. He was asking for the the firstborn's inheritance, which all the Jews knew about. He wanted a double portion. He wanted to completely inherit Elisha's spirit. After Elijah was taken up, Elisha found that he had been given both the spirit and power for which he'd asked God. But Elisha didn't change into Elijah, did he? 
He just kept going in that same spirit that he had. Now, since we have the Spirit of God living in us, from the moment we receive Christ by faith, we have that power within us. Yes, you're sitting in the seat and you think, who am I? I'm only a person, I'm shy, I don't do much. But you know, when God gets hold of you, he can do amazing things. And we have that power, that spirit within us. Remembering that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The world we live in is no better than it was in Elijah's time. Now, like Elijah, we need to be praying in faith for the repentance of those to whom God has called us to be witnesses. We do not have the right to say anybody cannot be saved. You ever said that? I've said it myself. How could that person ever be saved? Look how wicked they were. And yet, that is what we have been told, is nothing is too hard for God. Even the wickedest person, even the person who seems to have gone way over, can turn and change back. And so we're not the judges. All we need to do is be the instruments of God. We're called to be witnesses. We need, just need to be faithful and obedient to God's word, but remember our power comes completely from him. And we have no reason for pride. It's all him. How can we be proud when it's not us who does anything? Somebody comes and says to me, oh, that was a wonderful message. People come to Bob, I'm sure, saying that. And he feels terrible because he thinks, well, it wasn't me. And I know when anyone says that to me, it's not me. It's, it's God who's doing it. God is at work. And he's working in this building this morning. And I can promise you that. If we let him, we, get, we have no reason for pride. This is God's world, and Jesus Christ is still on the throne. You believe that? Yeah, he's still on the throne. You know, no matter how bad the world looks, you know, that terrible murder in, in America at Pittsburgh today, and all these other things, you know, the bombs going around and school bombings over there and murder, murderous things happening in Yemen and all this type of stuff. But God is still in control of his world. Nothing's happening without him being able to do something with it. <clears throat> and Jesus Christ is on the throne. And if we let him, he can use even us and give us that same spirit and power so that people will declare, the Lord, he is God. We want people to be able to say that after we've been near them. Just, just as Linda was saying, when people say, phew, and you've just said a few words, what we want them to be able to say, the Lord, he is God, like they did at Carmel. So what have we learned today? Isn't it nice? I finished short. My wife is so pleased with me. What have we learned today? First of all, the Holy Spirit lives in us. So we have more than the spirit and power of Elijah. The second thing that we've learned today is just as Elijah's prayers were answered, we can be sure that God hears and answers our prayers. So don't give up praying. 
Don't stop praying for that person that you think can't be saved. Believe me, there's a few people I pray for, even in my own family, and I won't give up, even though the case looks hopeless. But God is still on the throne. He's still in charge, and he can win them. And lastly, and this is the thing that is so wonderful, God still uses human beings just as we are. Isn't that wonderful? He still can use us just as we are. We come to him just as we are, and he, treat, he uses us just as we are. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. A loving Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of this man, Elijah, and those who come in the spirit and power of Elijah too. And we thank you, Lord, above all, that when you died on the cross for us, when you were risen from the dead, when you gave us gifts, when you gave us the Holy Spirit to live within us, we thank you that you took the weight of all these things upon yourself. We don't have to be worrying about whether people will be saved, whether people are listening, whether somebody's there you'd like to have heard. It's none of that. Anyone who's here today is here because you would have them here. And anyone you're speaking to this morning is here because you are speaking to them. And it's not from me or from any man that you have used us. And we thank you, Lord, that we have that power from you to break into the hearts of men with the word that reaches into the utmost parts of our being. And we pray, Lord, that we may go from this place strengthened and knowing that you are there. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.